from WNYC Studios. I'm Brian Lehrer. This is my Daily Politics Podcast. It's Monday, August 28th. We begin this new week with a special edition of our show, as well as by talking about the news of the day, because as some of you know, today is the 60th anniversary of the March on Washington that gave us Martin Luther King's iconic I Have a Dream speech. On the context of the march, people just usually call it the March on Washington, right? And don't realize that that was just a shorthand for the full name of it, which was the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. It certainly was centrally a civil rights march, of course, but it was also a labor rights march, a march for jobs and freedom. And being a march for freedom, I was thinking about how it can seem that that word has come to be used more these days on the political right than in the movements for social justice. It's really individual freedom from social justice or community concerns in this common form. A recent example, freedom from having to protect your neighbors from COVID during the pandemic emergency period by wearing masks in public places at that time. Remember that? Freedom. So I did a word search to see how the word freedom was used in the Republican presidential primary debate last week. And here are a couple of examples. North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum, probably the most irrelevant candidate in the whole race, but a Republican who was on the stage, as you will hear in this clip, invoked freedom to signal the freedom of business owners from federal regulations and the freedom of the states to take away a woman's freedom over her own body if she gets pregnant. Doug Burgum from the debate. We need to get back to freedom and liberty for the people in this country. And we can't have we can't have Republicans who fight for 50 years for this great cause and win. to return it back to the states. And then the next day they turn around and go, no, the feds should do that because the feds are stepping into people's lives. They're stepping into people's businesses over and over. Freedom from the federal government applies to individual business owners, according to Burgum, and to states on the issue of abortion, not to women. Another example of the word freedom being used in the debate candidate Vivek Ramaswamy used it in a totally inaccurate, if I may say, a historical way. He had several problems with historical accuracy that night, as has been widely pointed out. But in this one, with the word freedom, uh, and it's only a few seconds. And the U.S. Constitution, it is the strongest guarantor of freedom in human history. That is what won us the American Revolution. That is what will win us the revolution of 2024. So fact check, the U.S. Constitution could not have won us the American Revolution because the Americans won the Revolutionary War in 1783. The Constitution wasn't even written until 1787, four years later at the Constitutional Convention, and not ratified until six years later in 1789. So that was wrong. Also, as for it being the strongest guarantor of freedom in human history, well, that original Constitution, as I probably don't have to tell you, did not include the Bill of Rights yet, and did enshrine slavery in writing as a right of the states to impose, like Doug Burgum and the state's right to ban abortions today, I guess, states' rights to impose slavery at that time, voting only for white male property owners and with no Bill of Rights yet. That certainly left the original Constitution short of being the greatest guarantor of freedom in human history. 
But why quibble over small things? By contrast, here's an example of how freedom was defined at the March on Washington 60 years ago today, August 28, 1963. Just a few seconds here of March organizer A. Philip Randolph. We want a free democratic society dedicated to the political, economic, and social advancement of man along moral lines. Freedom runs along moral lines, a little different from Doug Burgum invoking business owners' freedoms as his primary modern example at the debate. Maybe A. Philip Randolph or Dr. King would have cited something like freedom from police killings, like the one in the Bronx last week of 30-year-old Eric Dupre, Have you heard that story? Trying to flee a buy-and-bust operation on his motorcycle when an NYPD sergeant threw a cooler at him, causing the motorcycle to crash. The New York City medical examiner has ruled Eric Dupre's death a homicide. Listeners, what does freedom mean to you in 2023? We put that out there as a serious question as we honor the 60th anniversary of the March on Washington for jobs and freedom. What does freedom mean to you? in 2023. Right now, some Monday morning politics with Jonathan Lemire, White House Bureau Chief for Politico and host of Way Too Early in the 5 a.m. Eastern Time Hour on MSNBC, as well as a regular member of the Morning Joe team there from 6 to 10. Jonathan, always good of you to do some 10 a.m. overtime with us. Welcome back to WNYC. Brian, glad to be here. So the Republican debate was so overshadowed in the media by the Donald Trump surrender and mugshot in the Fulton County, Georgia case, that we might forget things like how Republicans and conservatives in general use the word freedom today. Do you think those Doug Burgum and Vivek Ramaswamy clips were good examples of that and in contrast to the way it was used in the March on Washington clip? Oh, there's there's no question of that. That was a highly instructive uh, comparison and how the definition of freedom has really shifted, at least on the political right. And it does seem for so many Republicans, conservatives now, it, it, it's purely that individual freedom, almost a hyper-individualism, where it's about my freedoms and far less about the community's freedom, the collective good. That was the pandemic, as you noted, was probably the best example we've had of recently of that. Um, but others would argue that um, the, the right to bear arms, the firearms debate in this country is another example where there are some on the right who feel like they should have an unquestioned uh, ability and freedom to have any sort of weapon that they want, including a weapon of war, like an AR-15 that was used uh, again this weekend in that shooting, the racially motivated shooting in Jacksonville, Florida, as opposed to uh, the actual definition of in the Second Amendment uh, that our founders had uh, put pen to paper. So, yes, I do think that's right. Uh, and I also think, to your other point, that very little of what happened on Wednesday has changed much of the trajectory of the Republican primary race. We've seen a couple candidates get minor bumps here or there, but they all very much were in Donald Trump's shadow. And in our weekend newsletter, I invited readers to text us what the word freedom means to them. Here's a sampling of the responses we got. Freedom means being able to live unapologetically queer, trans, non-binary, or anywhere else on the spectrum. For me, freedom means your rights end where my nose begins, wrote another listener. Another one, to me, freedom means the right to live life unencumbered by unnecessary restraints, and in doing so, we achieve autonomy over decisions. 
And another reader wrote, freedom is the socially recognized power to participate in directing our shared political and cultural life. So interesting, Jonathan, already to the point that you were making the contrast between freedom as an individual thing and freedom as a community thing. Continuing, someone wrote, the more I spend time with immigrants, the more I have come to believe that freedom means fairness for all and a hope of safety to live your life. Someone else wrote, freedom is having a civil service pension, a rent-stabilized apartment, and time to do the painting and writing I put on, I put on hold. <laughs> um, two more. As an artist, freedom means that I can work in any medium and choose my subject matter freely, teach my art students to explore and create. And finally, someone else, what the word freedom means to me, a mirage, an aspiration to counter the myriad ways that our lives are constrained by physical, social, and other forces. And there are a bunch more that, um, that you wrote in, folks, in response to our weekend newsletter. I'll read some more later, but those are some of the texts we received on what freedom means to some people who read the newsletter. And listeners, we can take some more thoughts on that from you on the phones in this segment. What does freedom mean to you in 2023? Jonathan, I think one of the reasons Trump continues to dominate the Republican primary rank and file, tell me if you agree, is that there isn't much of a policy debate going on in the party, except maybe on Ukraine and maybe around the edges on abortion rights, just around the edges, as we heard from Doug Burgum. So why more... Um, why move on from the leader you already see as speaking from your interests? I'm curious if you saw any meaningful policy discussions in that debate. As a smart Republican strategist put it to me uh, some time ago, why pay to watch the cover band when you can see the real thing? The Rolling Stones are still on tour. Hmm. And that's what we have here, where so many of these Republicans, there are a couple exceptions which we can get into, are, are, are doing almost Trump impersonations. They're trump light. And you're right. There is very little in the way of policy differences. Yes, around the edges on abortion. I think Nikki Haley had a couple of moments where she broke through. She was one of the winners last week. And she spoke about abortion, sort of acknowledging that there was no ability to get a national ban through. So why are we even talking about this? Uh, while others, Republicans, Mike Pence included, really hammered home on that idea. Uh, certainly Ukraine is a big one. Uh, and we have heard from the likes of, say, Chris Christie and Asa Hutchinson and even and Mike Pence. You know, being very supportive of Kiev's efforts, while others, including Trump, including Vivek Ramaswamy, being highly skeptical of what Ukraine is doing and suggesting the war should end, even if that means giving Russia a lot of what it wants. Um, but those are few and far between. Right now, the Republican Party is a cult of personality. It is about Trump. It's about grievance. It's about attitude. It's about injustice. It's about the deep state. It's about allegations against Hunter Biden, whatever it is. But there's not a lot of disagreement within the party on basic tenets. So therefore, if everyone is largely you know, singing from the same choir book, well, go with the guy who's the best singer. In that case, it's Donald Trump, who is without question. Say what you, what, yeah, there are plenty of listeners uh, to your show who, who probably have very, very strong negative feelings about Donald Trump, but he is undeniably a political force uh, and has been now for, for nearly a decade. He is the leader of the party. Uh, and it seems like, at least for now, Republicans want to keep uh, staying in tune with him, uh, even though there are so many alarm bells from the GOP's perspective about his ability to win a general election, even though he looks so strong right now in the primaries. And maybe the reason Vivek Ramaswamy is moving up in the race for second place is 
He is a feisty speaker who, like Trump, sounds angry a lot and speaks in simple hyperbolic language a lot. I'm going to play one more example of him getting the founding of the country completely wrong, but framing Republican values in digestible sound bites in the process. So listen, folks, for his bullet points of original American values at the end of this clip, things no American was talking about in 1776. I was born in 1985, and I grew up into a generation where we were taught to celebrate our diversity and our differences so much that we forgot all of the ways we are really just the same as Americans, bound by a common set of ideals that set this nation into motion in 1776. And this is our moment to revive those common ideals. God is real. There are two genders. Fossil fuels are a requirement for human prosperity. Reverse racism is racism. So, Jonathan Lemire, fossil fuels are a requirement for human prosperity, and there are only two genders. As common ideals, the way he framed it, that bonded Americans in 1776. Yeah, that wasn't really on the topic of discussion uh, back then. Uh, but I think you've hit on something on Vivek Ramaswamy, who is, uh, as you can hear, he's, he's very good on the stump. Um, and he has seemingly established a bit of a connection with audiences, someone who is a complete unknown just a few months ago. But he's pretty tireless. He says he never says no to an interview. He's out there far more than many of his Republican uh, competitors. He's got plenty of money. He himself is, is quite rich. So he's out there and he's, uh, he's able to fund his campaign. Um, he is also someone who is, frankly, the most unapologetically pro-Trump candidate in the race. Um, and that's a pretty high bar because so many of them are very pro-Trump. And he, in fact, over the weekend on Meet the Press, said that he believes Trump is the best president of this of this century. Um, he, you know, it was questioned, well, if that's the case, why are you running to, to unseat him? And he just suggests that he could bring a new approach. But he has made it very clear. He is the first one to suggest that his hand shot up when he said he would support uh, Donald Trump, were Trump to be the nominee, even if he were convicted of a felon. And mm -hmm. his hand has gone up repeatedly where he has said he, if he were to be elected, he first act in office would be to pardon Donald Trump. And he has urged his other Republican candidates uh, to make that same pledge. So there is some speculation in the Beltway that Ramaswamy's angling to be Trump's VP, uh, that that may be what he's trying to do here, or secure some sort of cabinet position where Trump to win again. Um, but certainly he is the most extreme example, though, of something that's pretty common. With a few exceptions, Christine Hutchinson among them, Republicans really are not going after Trump. Maybe they make the electability argument. They say, hey, we love Donald Trump, but we're not sure he can win again because of the legal questions. But no one is attacking him directly, at least no one who right now seemingly has any shot to unseat him. I'm just curious since you watched the whole debate, I presume, I, I took a vacation week privilege and only watched highlights. <laughs> um, but did anyone call Ramaswamy on his ridiculously anachronistic sighting of history? No one did that to my recollection, but certainly he was the target of a lot of ire on the stage. From the reading uh, that I had uh, watching on television and from some in the room, Ramaswamy seems to sort of get under the skin of some of those other candidates who didn't seem to like him all that much. He, they, there's been some rumblings of other campaigns. They find him annoying or ingratiating, overly ingratiating, whatever it might be. But it was also reflective of where the race stands right now, that he had momentum going into the night. And therefore, he, with Trump not there, uh, 
was the subject of a number of attacks. Nikki Haley, in particular, went after him on issues of foreign policy. Chris Christie went after him um, and, and even made the Barack Obama comparison. Others didn't miss opportunities to take swipes at Ramaswamy, perhaps to the benefit of the person who, say, a few weeks ago and certainly a few months ago, you would have thought would have been center stage in Trump's absence, Governor DeSantis, whose campaign, who is, you know, since this race began, sort of seen as the top Trump alternative. Polls suggest that's still the case, but he has fallen dramatically. His support uh, has plummeted. Uh, and there was a sense that were he to have a really bad night, maybe his candidacy wouldn't even be able to recover. Instead, he largely stayed out of the line of fire and, you know, had what most observers thought was a decent night. At the very least, he stopped the bleeding uh, and he let Ramaswamy uh, take most of the shots instead. And as we commemorate the 60th anniversary of the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom, uh, if you're just joining us, we've invited listeners to call in with your thoughts on the meaning of freedom in 2023. Is it different from what people might have meant primarily in 1963? Marina in Greenpoint, you're on WNYC. Hi, Marina. Hello, good morning. Thanks so much for taking my call. Um, I think the first thing I just want to say that um, the U.S. Constitution was inspired by the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, which is a five nations, five indigenous nations who had what can be thought of as the first, the seeds of the Constitution that the U.S. Constitution was then built from. Um, and in the question about freedom and my personal freedom and all of that, um, it kind of um, it, it it makes me kind of shirk away a little bit from the question when questions of freedom are talked about or asked about without um, kind of a deeper sense of obligation towards one another. Um, so when I imagine my own personal freedom, so-called personal freedom, which I don't even know what that is, um, because I'm I live in a world that's interconnected. So for me to go out into my neighborhood um, and to be able to know the plants that are around me, know the local grasses, what are what is the water? Um, who are my neighbors? Um, how how am I connected to us to a world that's much bigger than I am? Um, and what are my responsibilities and obligations within that? Um, and I mean, I think that. What, what happened during the pandemic with masking, right, it, it became about this personal choice or the personal risk assessment. But that is a completely isolated freedom, right, because masks are fundamentally relational because we share air. In the pandemic, public health cannot exist in a completely isolated, um, individualized, mm -hmm. neoliberal self, right? Mm -hmm. Right. Marina, thank you. Thank you very much. And we're going to move on to Janet in Brooklyn. You're on WNYC. Hi, Janet. Good morning. I'm not sure if I should be in this segment, but because um, I wanted to talk about my mother being at the March on Washington and the relation to Trump being um, indicted by um, a black woman and all those black people in Atlanta who have a change, um, who now have... Um, who are arresting him and booking him. And I don't think my mother in 67 or, you know, I was 12 about would have mm -hmm. believed that um, we would be 
arresting a president and a black woman would be doing it. And so I think um, and for I, to me, I've seen a lot of changes in the, the years um, after um, the March on Washington. And I don't know if he would have even dreamed it. I don't know if I would have even dreamed it um, um, so many years ago. That's what I'd like to say. Janet, thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, yeah, certainly as we think about Martin Luther King, Dr. King, on the 60th anniversary of the I Have a Dream speech, of course, he was uh, centered for much of his life in Atlanta. And uh, here it is, after all, a black woman in Atlanta who, as district attorney, just indicted Donald Trump on those charges. So that's a a great thing to point out, Janet. Thank you very much. Uh, Jonathan Lemire, before you go, give us one more Monday morning politics thought. We've been talking about the Republicans. On the Democratic side, I see that one of your recent articles as White House Bureau Chief of Politico is called Biden World Moves to Stave Off Cornell West and No Labels Threat. Can you take us into that for our last minute? Sure, happy to do so. The president is back in Washington after a week's vacation uh, last week, and certainly he is running largely unopposed in the Democratic primary field. Yes, there's some RFK Jr. Uh, attention, but what the White House and the team around the president to get him, secure him another four years, they're looking, of course, at the general election. At the moment, they projected Donald Trump would be their opponent, and they know how close the election was last time how the 2016 election was, too. So any sort of third-party candidate would pose a threat, and there is a sense that whether it's from the No Labels organization or Cornell West, that either of those candidates, West at the moment would be in the Green Party ticket, would be more of a threat to draw votes away from Biden than Trump. So that is something that they're deeply aware of, even at this early stage in the election, uh, and aim to try to ward off those challenges. Jonathan Lemire, White House Bureau Chief for Politico, host of Way Too Early in the 5 a.m. Eastern Time Hour on MSNBC, as well as a regular member of the Morning Joe team there from 6 to 10. Jonathan, we always appreciate it. Thanks very much. My pleasure. Hope to do it again soon. Brian Lehrer, a daily politics podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you next time.